It's wonderful to be back in this pulpit. I was doing a little research to remind myself that the first time I climbed up this high over this many people was back in June in 1996. I had the privilege of being one of the preachers during the PCH General Assembly when Coral Ridge hosted it. So that's a long time. Some of you were not even, even alive in 1996. So it's good to be back. What a great tradition and legacy and story God has been writing in and through this community for many years. And this morning, I have the privilege of inviting us to hear a very brief text of Scripture from which I trust the Lord to give us fresh understanding of the wonders of His love and the riches of His grace. You have seen in your bulletin that my text is one verse out of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 26. And it basically goes like this. Oh, my son, give me your heart. You could read it differently. Oh, my son, give me your heart. Our God is so emphatic in this amazing part of his word. I pray we will discover that this morning. Would you pray with me as we come now to the throne of grace? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, glorious triune God, thank you for the privilege that I have this morning with these whom you cherish to ponder the height and the depth and the width and the breadth and to know the love of Jesus that passes understanding. Would you grant us power with all the saints, our brothers and sisters throughout the world, to know this great love, the only love that is better than life, the only love that will never let go of us, the only love that is enough to rekindle our wonder and to meet us in our wanderings. To this end, we trust you, we praise you, and we bless you, our Father. Indeed, take our hearts afresh, we pray, for your glory and honor as we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, what a tremendous declaration of our God offered, declared, given to sons and daughters of the living God. Let's not lose on the front end of this admonition, this invitation. What's going on? Our Heavenly Father is beckoning, saying, commanding to his sons and daughters, those that already know him. Now, that doesn't preclude this morning any of you in this room or those that are watching in who don't know the Father. In fact, I would pray for those of you just beginning to look over the fence at the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that as our Father speaks to those who are his sons and daughters, that it would richly encourage you to know this is the kind of God revealed in the Bible. This is what God wants more than anything else from his people today and always. My son, my daughters, give me your hearts. Now, what does that mean? What does God declare to be true of the invitation and calling to, to, for us to give him our hearts? Well, our God wants, our God craves, our God deserves our greatest affection. 
The language of the heart is the center of who we are. God wants us to be deeply alive to Him, giving Him affection. He calls forth childlike wonder. And that's a beautiful thing to know that as the gospel frees us from childishness, it launches us into childlikeness, something magnificent about having these beautiful children here this morning, their, their beauty, their freedom, their capacity just to show us true wonder. Our God wants for us more language declaring his desire for our hearts, his claim over our hearts. He wants and deserves bridal affection. All these images are meant to stir within us an, an invitation to say, where is my heart right now? As a child of the living God, as someone that is glad to say today, I belong to Abba Father, but where is the condition of my heart today? What does it mean to know that our Father wants our hearts? Abraham Kuyper was the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, an amazing Dutch brother in the Lord Jesus Christ created the Free University of Amsterdam and was just an amazingly brilliant man. He wrote a wonderful devotional on Psalm 73. And in the midst of that great reflection, long reflection on one of my favorite Psalms, Abraham Kuyper said this, that God, that God is jealous for our love is the greatest compliment he could offer us. That God wants... Not principally our behavior, that's another grand reality, but that first and foremost, said Kuiper, that God wants our love is the greatest compliment. I think that's exactly what's going on in this remarkable verse. A father that has sons and daughters, and he knows like we have already sung this morning, we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love afresh by your spirit. Take and seal these hearts. Well, what further does that look like? Maybe some more language that would help us connect all of us with what it means to be a people who are pursued this morning by the one who has sealed us for eternity. See if this language connects. For some of us gathered here today or, or watching in with us, for some of us, God is still our truth, but not necessarily our treasure. For some of us, we, we defend the existence of God, but no longer delight in the excellencies of God. For some of us, we readily know what that means, like we're li living in a changing culture. We feel the need to defend our God. Well, that's very important. But what does it mean to delight in His excellencies? Still others of us affirm the authority of Jesus, but we're not presently, right now, July 2018, living in awe of His beauty. There's been a shift. There's been... Various things, pulls, losses, temptations that have moved us from this posture in which our Father says, I want your heart. I want your heart. I want the best of you. Indeed, it's possible to have a regard for God's law, 
but little astonishment of his love. Well, further, let's just consider in Scripture how our God wants to make this so overwhelmingly clear to us and why it is, like Kuiper said, good news today for those of us that will even be convicted about heart drift. Heart drift is pronounced in one of the most remarkable laments in the Bible. And I'm going to read a few different scriptures just to show through the tapestry of the word of God that God from Genesis through Revelation is always pursuing a people to delight in and is always pursuing that people for a deeper experience of his love. Listen through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1, a lament of our father and language that he uses that, that would truly invite us today to consider. Do I understand what that means? Listen to the word of God. The word of the Lord came to me, said Jeremiah the prophet. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Here's God now speaking in first person. Here's his lament towards his people. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Think about this. Here's God using the language of honeymoon affection. I remember, says our God to his people, I, re I remember the devotion of your youth when we first got married. You were the bride. Through the tenderness, through the joys, through the, through the wonder of intimacy, you followed me even in the desert. Jeremiah 2 goes further into the lament of our God. And he says, what fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? Let's just, just sit in that incredible picture. God loves us like a bridegroom. That should not shock us, right? Because we know the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. Genesis 1 and 2 is not primarily the, the wedding of the first man and the first woman, although that is there. The, the first wedding, the, the core wedding, the principal affection that's revealed in Genesis 1 and 2 is God marrying himself to his first son and daughter. And we go through the whole story of the word of God and we find that the Bible ends Revelation 19, with that for which we long in this room, the wedding feast of the Lamb, when the fullness and the fulfillment of what it means to be in relationship with the living God through the work of Jesus, it will be fully celebrated. In the middle of his word, God still addresses his people in a way that should startle us. You see... For some of us, it's easier for us to give God our hands than our hearts. Well, how do we see that reflected in different characters in the Bible? You know, God gives us so many wonderful stories to highlight his pursuit, to highlight the wonders of his love, to convict us when we have drifted knowingly and unknowingly. Just a few examples further echoing our father's lament over his people that have lost heart or given their heart some other place. I referred earlier to Kuiper's great devotional on Psalm 73. And Asaph is one of my favorite characters that demonstrates what we mean by someone that has lost heart. Hear his language. Once again, the gift to us to know that if we are in a place of disconnect from the living God, we're, we're not giving up on believing, but our, our hearts are, are, are distant, cooled. Our, our hearts are disengaged or preoccupied elsewhere. 
Here's a gift to us. Asaph, who worked under King David as a worship leader in the temple. He gives us a grand gift in Psalm 73. It's the gift of of, of showing us his own story of drifting. And here's how he described in his own testimony a season of life that we don't know how long it was, but it was painful. But he's humble and he's vulnerable. And he meets many of us in this room exactly where we are when he said to our God, writing Psalm 73. And I'll pick up reading right now at verse 21. Listen, Listen to the beauty of his testimony. Asaph said, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Now let's remember all the Psalms were given to the people of God to sing. So this means that when we are in a difficult place, we can stop our posing and pretending before such a God. What a great gift. Asaph's saying, as a believer, as a son of the living God, through circumstances, through foolishness, through various reasons, I became a bitter man. I became embittered, senseless, ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, but the Lord met him there. And here's his testimony also of how grace renewed his heart. Look at verse 23. Yet he says... I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you would take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Isn't that an extraordinary gift? A godly man, a son of the living God, went through a season of incredible disconnect. And the Lord met him there because it's the same Lord that says to us that beckoned Asaph, My son, give me your heart. You've given me your service. Give me your heart. Another example, think of Jonah. Jonah, what a tremendous book. And once again, a great gift that would help us understand that you can be a servant of the living God. You can love God. You can, you can do so many things for God, but go through a horrible trauma that might put you on a course of running away. When we read the book of Jonah, we need to trust the Spirit to show us that Jonah's calling to go to Nineveh, to go to Assyria, to preach God's judgment and therefore God's grace. Judgment precedes grace because it highlights our need. Why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? I don't think he was just a selfish man. I think we need to understand in biblical history that the Assyrians were some of the most barbaric people towards the nation Israel. And it's not unlikely that Jonah and his family had lost friends, family, neighbors to this pillaging nation. And sometimes you see, when we go through trauma, when we go through heartache, hardship, difficulty in our service to the living God, we too, like Jonah, are tempted to to book ourselves a ticket to run away from God. And yet the Lord pursued Jonah as the Lord pursued Asaph. Asaph, I love you. I'm glad you write songs for my people. But where's the song in your heart? Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? Let's, let's, let's ponder this together. 
Jonah is a great example of how sometimes we believers can still hold on to the lyric of the gospel but lose its music. Do you remember there early in Jonah 4, Jonah says to God in a time of great pain in his heart, he says, I knew you to be a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in kindness. That's why I would rather die than live. Do you see the disconnection in the heart? Jonah saying, here's a good theology of grace and yet right now I want to die. Why? Because his calling was hard. There's been real story that really contradicted his experience of the living God with what he proclaimed to be true, the living God. If that is you this morning, you are so welcome here. You, you are so in the right place. You see, as the people of God, when our hearts drift or when we intentionally run away, we're pursued by the one who knows our weakness and, and knows that as we give him our hearts, we give him everything else with our hearts, our beauty and our baggage, our brokenness and our best, our eyes that learn to delight in his ways because our hearts again have come alive to his mercy and his kindness and his persistence. Just a couple more examples that might give us an opportunity to say that through the word of God is me. That represents heart shift in my life and season. We have a professional Christian Asaph. We have a prophet Jonah in a place of great pain. Well, what about our dear friend Martha in Luke chapter 11? You remember that story, two sisters, Mary and Martha, one of the main homes that Jesus found comfort in in his three years of itinerant ministry. And we have that incredibly convicting story in Luke 11, when Jesus, as he's making his way to Jerusalem, goes into this family's home, two sisters, the brother of Lazarus, you remember the story. Mary, Martha's sister, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and, and she's taking the posture of communion and meditation and fellowship. What's Martha doing? Well, she is in the kitchen making fresh falafel for Jesus, and she's very angry that she's all alone. And remember how this story plays out. Martha leaves the kitchen, comes into Jesus. And here's what she says to Jesus. Jesus, don't you care? Now, that should be an automatic contradiction, right? But she was free to say it. Because for her, here's what life was about. Doing for Jesus, not being with Jesus. And I love the way Jesus responded to Martha. Martha, Martha, you are distracted by so many things. But only one thing is really necessary. And Mary has chosen the main thing, the core thing, the principal thing, and it will not be taken from her. Do you see the beauty of Jesus speaking to a woman? Could be a man that is simply living life with distractions. Some of you are not locked in trauma running from God. Some of you are. Some of you are not simply bitter about any of a number of things. You're just too busy. And you're distracted by everything from your grandchildren that will not sit still to your husband that still doesn't take out the trash 
to people that don't show up and help you in the kitchen. And the impact is just the same. You've lost the wonder. You've become irritated. Oh, you haven't given up on the gospel. You haven't given up on giving to the church, but your, your heart has shifted one more. And then we'll move towards, indeed, our Lord's meeting with us. One more story that perhaps is part of the grand collage today that would help us to say, Lord, that is me. Luke chapter 15, a little bit further in Luke's gospel, we meet that beloved story of two sons and a pursuing father. We call that story the prodigal son, but we know really it's the prodigal son's plural because the elder brother is always among us and in us. And you know the story. Here's a father, Luke 15, as Jesus tells the story that's reflective of the true father that welcomes home one of his boys that has run away to a faraway country and has lived an outrageously destructive life. We get that, right? We, we, we know that's what people tend to do when they run away from God. Oh, really? Perhaps we need to see more fully how you can be right on the premises but become strangers to the promises. And that's the elder brother. He hears the music. He hears the dancing of his father that's been generous to welcome home a very foolish, sinful, destructive member of the family. And yet he, the elder brother, refuses to go in. And we read there in Luke 15 of his attitude. He is like Martha, angry at God. Father, you never gave me a young calf to celebrate with my friends. And yet we see this father pursuing this disconnected heart of self-righteousness of someone that's become so critical. They haven't left the church. They haven't left the kingdom. But they're right there, and you can see in the attitude of the elder brother. You can see it highlighted against the backdrop of the heart of this father. My son, says the father in Luke 15 to the elder brother, everything I have is yours. Everything, not just a fatted calf, everything I have is yours. It was right that we would rejoice and be glad. For your brother is home. Maybe this morning, just briefly reminding ourselves of a few of the stories of sons and daughters that move into a place of disconnected heart. What does it look like? Most often it looks like we change relationally. And all four of these stories, the first people that would know there's been a heart drift are the people they live with. It's the same for us. What do you hear through your spouse? What do you hear through your friends? What do you hear in the place where you work that perhaps is becoming increasingly difficult and, 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 and you're knowing something's not right in your heart and you want to blame it on your boss. You want to blame it on your kids. You want to blame it on your pastor. You want to blame it on your neighbors. If you are falling into that blame and shame motif, the father is saying to you, oh, my daughter, give me your heart. Oh, my son. Give me your heart. We can think even earlier in Proverbs 4.23 why the issue of the heart is so critical. Remember Proverbs 4.23? 
Let me read it. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. When our Father has our hearts, He has everything else. That's why it's such a critical conversation today. We're not talking about merely being enthusiastic for Jesus. We're not simply talking about an emotional experience, but the core grand reality of our Father's claim on our hearts. Well, as we wind down now, let me ask us this question, and then one final observation. What is God's greatest competition for your heart in this season? We've looked at some of our friends and the family of God, but what about your own season of life? What's, what's God's greatest competition for your heart? This is something you can do later today or this week. It's interesting, Proverbs 23, 26, our passage for the day, is in the midst of a section in the book of Proverbs that actually begins at Proverbs twenty two seventeen and goes through Proverbs 24, 22. And it's a list of 30 sayings. It's just one of the blocks in the book of Proverbs. It's 30 sayings, sayings of the wise. And our verse is right in the middle of that. And what you find in Proverbs 22, 17 through 24, 22 are all kinds of things that vie for our hearts. There are so many things that are constantly vying for our hearts, competing with God. Just so happened when I read through that section, I came up with a lot of P's. That's not just preacher speak. You know, sometimes we preachers seem to look for little communicative hooks. This is just the way it played out. If you go through that whole section, here's what you find that's vying for our hearts all the time. Power, possessions, prestige, prostitutes, pain-free living. Let me reduce it to this common denominator. Do you, know what, do you want to know how you can best identify what is competing with God for your heart? Two things. You may want to write these down. The two main Realities, pulls that will always help us understand what is God's competition for your heart is this. Number one, whatever promises to fulfill the longings that God has given you. Your heart will go, my heart will go to whatever promises, wrongly so, to fulfill God-giving longings. Right now, if, if the longings that God has written to you as an image bearer of God are screaming for fulfillment, be careful to who or what you look for fulfillment. You're made for deep intimacy. First and foremost with God. There is no marriage. There are no kids. There is no church. There's no company. There are no friends that can possibly fill the God-shaped void and vacuum in your heart. That's why we men and some of us sisters gravitate towards pornography. It's the promise of intimacy without commitment. But what's the promise of money to which Jesus would say you cannot love God and love money? He's not dissing possessions, but he's showing us one of the easiest ways we can do life to be more defined with a sense of fulfillment and identity than trusting the living God is to boast in what we have. I don't know what that looks like for you today, but here's one more. And then we will finish by answering this last question. Why does our Father deserve our hearts? 
I mentioned two pools. Be always be attending to whatever or whoever is promising to fulfill God-giving longings in your life apart from God Himself. But secondly, here's one that's been true of a part of my story. Whatever promises relief from your pain. There are few powers in life that demand attention like pain, whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. And in my life and story, when I consider seasons of heart drift, I I don't linger long in the world of ambition. I have never been a very ambitious person. The very fact that I was privileged to plant and pastor a pretty big church is just God's sense of humor on an introvert to whom he's given extroverted gifts. But I know pain. I know betrayal and loss. I know death. I know the death of my innocence through a season of sexual abuse. I know the death of hope when my mom was killed. Some of you know that part of my story. And a lot of my heart drift before I met Jesus and even since was not knowing how to bring the pain to this father. So why is this father, why does he need to be listened to today? And in what sense do you know you're here today just to hear this? Again, what's the question? What are you doing with your heart? Who are you looking to or what are you looking to to fulfill longings? God gave you good longings that are not meant to be denied but fulfilled by him. And secondly, what are you doing with your pain? Can we trust this father in conclusion? I want to read one scripture. Why does this father deserve our best and our brokenness today? Why would you risk today yet again coming to him and saying, take my heart and seal it afresh, O God? Doesn't mean I'm going to be re-saved. That has been settled once and for all. Isn't it awesome to know that every son or daughter God adopts, you will be his son or daughter tomorrow and the next day because God will never unadopt you. But he surely wants you to know him better. What kind of father is he? I'll finish with this text. John writes in 1 John 3, how great, actually the Greek reads more like this, Behold, ponder, linger, notice, put the spotlight on, don't quickly move on, consider, behold, measure, be astonished at the love the Father has lavished on us, not dribbled, not dripped, lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are and what we will be. We do not know, but we know this, that when we see Jesus, we will be made like him. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself, sets his or her heart apart for this father. Everyone that has the hope that you are loved lavishly, that you are known completely, whether your name is Asaph, Jonah, Martha, Mary, Danielle, Johnny, Billy, Frank, whoever you are, this Father welcomes you into a story that has the grand conclusion that when Jesus returns, 
you will be as lovely as and as loving as Jesus. What a hope. What an on-ramp to come home to this Father.